So like we said, um, Jude um, admonished us to build up ourselves on our most holy faith. And we said the context, the basis of that building activity is the most holy faith. And we said that the faith is most holy because it is complete, right? It came from heaven. It is, it is not open to deductions or additions. And it is, it is designed to fulfill and satisfy and save the whole man, right? Spirit, soul, and body. And anytime we remove anything from the faith, then we lose the most holy faith. And we said that at the center of our most holy faith is the doctrine of Christ. And we said that the doctrine of Christ was not his, which we're going to see earlier, which we're going to see later. We also said that that doctrine was transferred to the apostles. And the, the book of Acts tells us that one of the core practices of the first apostolic church was that they continued steadfastly in this doctrine. And that's also an important point to make again, that Jude said the reason why he wrote his letter in the first place was that he wanted to talk to us about our common salvation. And we said that the issues of our common salvation are not issues that we can exhaust their depth. And sometimes we're in a hurry to move on to higher things when what God really wants for us is for us to be so rooted and so grounded in the common things that belong to our salvation, that our faith is steadfast, immovable, profitable, and fruitful. And so what Jude was saying to us is that we should take every opportunity that we get to discuss our common salvation. Just in case, Yudi, I meet you in the supermarket. <laughs> the topic of our common salvation is a good conversation starter um, because there is guaranteed to be a blessing and a release from that conversation. Um, so we want to begin with where Christ began, or rather in the Gospels, the first place we see a mention of this doctrine and to build up from there. We're going to read John chapter 7 from verse 1 to verse 18. Um, Sam is our co-host, so I'll ask him to please read for us. Um, it's on my screen. So it's a bit of a long read, but I will implore you to please Stay with us in the reading. Every verse is important in, us, in order for us to understand what is at the heart and at the center of Christianity. Okay, Sami? So from verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, you show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always, is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that it, its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he has said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers 
had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having not studied? Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Okay, thank you so much, Sami, for that reading. So quite a number of interesting things are going on in this chapter. And I wanted us to begin from verse one of this chapter so that we can have the context of this pronouncement, right? So think about it. Jesus is about to reveal to us his doctrine. He's about to reveal to us what is at the heart of Christianity. And this is where we need to pay attention, right? Because um, you, you could go out tomorrow and someone ask you, or maybe you don't even have to go out. In your family, someone could ask you, what is it that's at the heart of Christianity, right? What's, what differentiates Christ from all the other gods or all the other avatars of history, as it were? Um, so Jesus is about to reveal the compelling aspect of what makes your faith your faith and why you can be sure that you're holding on to the one true faith, right? But then the ceremony that he chooses for this unveiling is the Feast of Tabernacles. Of course, you, you realize that this particular feast, right, was no coincidence. So Jesus did not coincidentally wake up on the Feast of Tabernacles and decide that it's today I'm going to let people know about my doctrine, right? It's, it's, it's significant that this unveiling is happening at this Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is one of the many feasts that God commanded Israel to observe um, after their deliverance from Egypt. And the Feast of Passover of, of Tabernacles was particularly supposed to commemorate their dwelling in tents. So when God led them through the wilderness, they pitched their tents. And even God himself dwelt in a tent, which we know as the Tabernacle of Moses. And so they dwelt in tents and they were led like um, by the pillar of cloud um, and fire by day and by night. Um, and it's an experience that God wants them to remember because that entire experience is pointing towards something, right? So every late fall, September, October, or early fall, September, October in Israel, the men and their families would travel to Jerusalem, mostly the men, because the journey was usually a treacherous one. Would travel to Jerusalem and they would pitch their tents literally on the, on the streets. And um, um, it would begin on the Sabbath and end on the Sabbath. And they were not supposed to do any 
um, heavy duty activity. They were just supposed to rest and contemplate and rejoice and celebrate the deliverance of God and remember that their ancestors once dwelt in tabernacles. So the question then is, what is the significance of this feast, of the Feast of Tabernacles? Because the brothers of Jesus came to him and began to encourage him that he needs more visibility, that nobody who does the kind of miracles he does expecting to be known does them in secret, that you, if there's any time to broadcast your ministry and start you know, accruing some followers and perhaps some political and economic power down the line, you know, anybody who hopes to work in these kind of realities needs to, needs to present his manifesto essentially and needs to say something. But it's at that point that we begin to see that Jesus was different. I think that's the mild way to put it. <laughs> he was different. He said, your time, your time is always right. Meaning that you are the Lord of your own life, right? You are the Lord of your own circumstances. You can wake up today and decide you're going to a feast and go. But for me, it's not exactly like that. So this is already beginning to hint us, right? At what his doctrine is. He's essentially telling them that I'm not really in control of my timings. And so even though I want to go to this feast, um, I feel a restraint in my spirit, which for the people he's talking to is a strange thing because they don't know that experience, right? It's a very personal, organic experience. And we do see that after they went to that feast, he did join them, meaning that he felt a release in his heart. So the timing he was referring to there was not chronological timing per se, right? Because the time couldn't have changed so quickly um, within the few hours from when they left to when Jesus joined them. But the timing he was referring to was, was the will of the one who was living in him. So that's the first important point to note. The second important point to note is the definition of doctrine, because we're looking at the doctrine of Christ, right? He went up to this feast, and then the Bible says that Jesus began to teach. So let's look at what it says. They were looking for him. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives people. But nobody could speak openly about him for the fear of the Jews. Um, now, in the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began to teach, which, was, which is something that we'll come back to later. Now, when he began to teach, Usually, when you read that Jesus began to teach, you would think that the most important thing the scripture wants to let us know is the content of his teaching, right? And this is what we find in most other passages of scripture, is that the scripture is at great pains to provide us with the content of the teaching of Jesus, because that's what can impart life, right? In the previous chapter, he said to his disciples in John 6, 63, that the words I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. So, but in this case, John is not very concerned with what he was teaching. In fact, the, the Jews who are marveling here are not too concerned with what he was teaching. Remember, we're trying to arrive at the definition of doctrine, right? He says, and they said in verse 15, how does this man know letters, having never studied? So they couldn't trace what rabbinic college or rabbinic professor that he sat under but they could not resist the wisdom and the intelligence that he spoke with. So there was something about him that was not learned, that was not studied, essentially, that was not taught by any man. 
So what is that thing? So what they marveled at essentially was his life, right? And Jesus interpreted their question to mean that they were referring to his doctrine. So when they asked about his life, he, he concluded that his life is equal to his doctrine. I know that if you pull up your dictionary and um, you look for the definition of the word doctrine, they will tell you that it's a, it's a body of teaching, right? But that's not how the Jews or Jesus or the apostles understood doctrine. Doctrine is not first and foremost a teaching, right? Doctrine is a life. There is a sense in which doctrine is inescapable. You and I have a doctrine. The doctrine is not so much what we're saying, but it's the life that we're living, right? You, you saw um, in James, when we, looked at, when, when we looked at the way of Cain and the error, and the error of Balaam, right? And the gainsaying of Korah. Now, these were individuals in history. They didn't write a book. You know, today, if somebody wants to propound a theory, right, or, or um, expose their doctrine to the world, they write a book and then people buy it and people get brainwashed or influenced by their concepts and ideas. But this is not how um, <laughs> Cain pioneered a way. Neither is it how Balaam pioneered an error. He didn't document any of his activities. Rather, all he did, because in the book of Revelation, Jesus refers to it as the doctrine of Balaam. It had graduated into a teaching at that point. All Balaam did was to live out his life. And the life that he was living out became a doctrine, became an, an example. To say, friends, to you and I, that doctrine is not something that, you know, <laughs> it's not something you pick and choose, right? It's not something you take a position on primarily. The position you take on doctrine is the outworking of your life. So, so that you cannot say, I am doctrineless or I'm in the middle. The very life that you're producing, the fruit that you're producing is what forms your doctrine. So that even if you tell us that my doctrine is that God is holy, right? but your life does not produce the fruits of holiness, then your doctrine is something else. Your doctrine is that even though God is holy, he can make men produce holy. That's your complete doctrine because men are thought more by example right, than by intellectual activity. You know, when God was ready to speak to man, he didn't write letters. He sent a person, he sent Jesus. The first person that God wrote to um, and gave him 10 commandments, when he was done, he broke all 10 commandments at the same time, which was Moses. And so that it became clear to anybody who was paying attention that something deeper than intellectual activity needs to happen in, in man, right? To cure his problems. You know, in our society, we believe that Humanity is good. What is bad is the structures, right? That we build around humanity that makes it unpleasant. So, so, so the socialists, for example, believe that, you know, humans are good, but we have the wrong social structures, right? So if we can pull down the patriarchy, pull down every social structure and set up new ones, then things will work out. And the, the 20th century showed us how that is a very bad idea. And also the capitalists believe that, you know, yes, they, they, um, they are right that, that we take away the incentive for work from people when we go to socialism, but their solution then is that let's enable creativity by um, essentially 
introducing a survival of the fittest system, right? And the premise is that when we make all the money, we're going to give it back to people. And of course, we've realized the evils in capitalism have shown us that um, the problem is not the systems, right? The problem is not the systems. The problem is the person. So that you cannot change a man by educating him. I think we have said this before in one of our studies. You have to first, there's something inside of a man that you have to adjust. You have to adjust the life inside him. You have to adjust the principle inside him. You have to adjust the kingdom inside him. And then you can begin to educate his mind. If you, if you take a regular man and you, be, and you educate his mind, what you have is an educated sinner who, who discovers educated ways to oppose God. Right? The way to help a man is not by teachings, first of all, but by an example, by something organic. So the, the Jews interpreted Jesus' doctrine as the thing in him that produced this kind of um, amazing possibilities. They said, how does this man know letters? Having never learned. I don't want us to jump ahead of ourselves. But friends, Paul tells us that there are certain things that God has prepared for you and for I that eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, have not entered into the heart of man. Meaning that there are some things that you can know that you have never studied, right? But of course, there is a, there's a method, there's a principle, there's a way for coming into those things. But the Bible says that they are prepared for your glory. Even you do not know them until you come into the corridor that requires those expressions. It is something inside that produces such possibilities, right? In the book of Acts, just to buttress this point of the definition of doctrine, Luke is the author of Acts, and he had written a treatise to, to, to Theophilus, who was, who was an honorable in the, in the Roman society at that time. And then he's referencing that um, treatise, right? or that account, which is the book of Luke, in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, it says, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. So you see that um, even though you might read the book of Luke and you come to the conclusion that these are the teachings of Jesus, that's not Luke, that's not the author's view of the book, right? The author's view is that there are things that Jesus began both to do and to teach, right? So that the teaching could not be divorced from the doing, right? If I teach something, but I do not have the, the life, the capacity to produce what I teach, then it doesn't matter what I teach, actually. Right? The reality is in what I do. And that is my doctrine. So that if, even if I say that um, God is a God of love and mercy, and then there's no mercy in my life, that, that expression is, is, is my doctrine. And I might need to take heed to my doctrine um, and to recalibrate it in order to come back into alignment. Okay? I want to pause there so that I don't run ahead of myself too much. Does that make sense as a definition of doctrine? And what are your thoughts on it? Okay. Um, if I, if I, would like to, I would like to suggest, or, um, no, not a suggestion, kind of like... Um, observation mm -hmm. uh, and i think this portion of um, the portion you pointed out in luke actually sealed it um mm -hmm. yeah, 
because if we are connecting verse 16 of John chapter 7 with verse 1 of Luke, of sorry, of Acts chapter 1, you know, Jesus mm-hmm. said, my the doctrine is not mine, but he who sends me. And then, you know, it's, that place in chapter 1 of Luke, of Acts rather, says everything, all the, the summation of the writing is to enumerate his doctrine. That's what he did, which was the which was the platform on which he taught all he taught. So I think it's easy to see. I think doctrine is is plain from what you explained there. Okay, okay. Thank you, Sami. I think there's another comment on the chat, or two comments rather, um, attesting to that. Okay, awesome. So this is the first thing I want us to note. In fact, if it's the only thing that you take away from this study, I will be very happy about that. That doctrine is inescapable. Your life is producing a doctrine, right? Which is why Jesus said, I want your light to so shine that men may see your good works and glorify your father, which is in heaven. So that your life is, is the message, is the epistle, as it were, that many are going to read. Do you realize that in the book of Acts chapter 5, the, the high priests, the chief priests, all the priests of that day, including the ones appointed by Herod and the ones appointed according to the Aaronic priesthood, they accused the disciples of filling the land with their doctrine. Do you remember that scripture? Yeah. In Acts chapter 5. Yeah. Let's, yeah. Try to, let's try to find it. Or is it Acts chapter 4? That's Acts chapter 5, verse 28, not chapter 4. I always confuse these two chapters. So the apostles were on trial again, right? And it says, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council. Now, this council was a council of priests and people that had political power, right? People that had the social media handles of the day, people that could broadcast a message and it would reach a million people at the same time. Then they were speaking to <laughs> disciples that didn't, as, that didn't have a microphone, that didn't have any means, right, to broadcast their, their message in any way that could have made any sort of impact. But they, but they said to them, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. <laughs> And you intend to put this man's blood on us. How did these disciples who were severely outnumbered manage to fill Jerusalem with their doctrine? Did, like, does it mean that they went from place to place, right? House to house, district to district in, in Jerusalem, preaching the gospel? Of course, this is only Acts chapter 5. So they didn't even have the chance to have done that. But it shows you that if doctrine was just words, then you know, they would have needed social media for them to fill Jerusalem with their doctrine, right? But they didn't have social media. They, in, what happened to them was that when the Holy Ghost came upon them, they put on display a life that was infectious. And that life traveled with its own energy. It, it, it spread, the products of that life spread like wildfire around Jerusalem. And this is God's intention for you and I, friends, that by that everywhere he plants us, in the office where he plants you, in the family where he plants you, in the city where he plants you, that when we come back and check, it will be the case that 
you have sealed it with your doctrine. That even though your doctrine was unpopular, was it was not the right way of doing things. When we come back and check, we realize that people are beginning to adopt that method. I always give the example of myself that as a software engineer, I I I work in an industry, especially here in the West, right? That is that that runs on ego, right? And runs on some level of subtle pride, essentially. And so people have that picture and understanding, right, of a software engineer. It's an expectation. And there's a sense in which you are short changing yourself, short selling yourself if you don't show off your intellectualism by being disdainful or being angry or being skeptical. You know, just you, 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 if you've met any of the type, you, you should be able to relate to what I'm talking about. Software engineers are not supposed to be, especially the ones who know what they're doing. Yeah. So any software engineer who presents himself as kind, approachable, um, full of mercy <laughs> is, is considered to be mediocre until they now see a different doctrine in display. In my previous company, which I just left, I, I literally saw the entire culture around engineering, engineering transform, right? From what it was before, within the three years that I was there, three and a half years or so that I was there, without, without quoting a scripture, because doctrine is something that you put on display and then you feel it, you feel the land with your doctrine. Okay. The next big question is what was this doctrine, right? So Jesus is not being very direct now. If we go back to John chapter seven, he's saying that my doctrine, so trying to get to the details of the doctrine, my doctrine is not mine, but he's who sent me. So, okay, it's not yours. So <laughs> how do we know the doctrine? He says, you can't even know it. I can't tell you the doctrine, right? You have to enter into it yourself. I cannot tell you. He says, if anyone wills to do his will, he will know the doctrine. So he's saying that there's a knowledge that you cannot acquire by learning, right? You can only acquire this knowledge by experience, by encounter. And so this, this knowledge is only granted to you um, when you make a choice. And that choice is to do his will. And that you will then know the doctrine. And so this, again, is a confirmation that the doctrine was not a message, but the doctrine was a life. The doctrine of Christ is or was and is the life that he had. Right? It was that life that was his control tower, that was his operating system. He was submitted to the rhythms of that life, to the pulses of that life. That explains, right? And we're going somewhere with this. This is not where we're landing. That explains why he couldn't just wake up and go to the Feast of Tabernacles. He said to them, you don't have the pulses I have inside of me. If you had the pulses I have, you may not even go for that feast. According to the pulses of life that I have in me, it's not time to go for, to go for the feast. And I'm only going to go for the feast when, when, when that life permits me to go. He was fully submitted to the, to the um, pulses, as it were, of that life, right? He didn't have an agenda of his own in that sense. So he was saying that his doctrine is a life. So those things that he didn't study, but he knew they were flowing from a life, right? 
for example, I'm teaching this Bible study now without notes written somewhere. You know, I'm not sermonizing. I'm not reading out something. And there's absolutely nothing wrong in doing that. But the reason why this is possible is because it's coming from a life. You know, Jesus was so strict about this principle that he didn't permit any kind of accolades or glory that did not make reference to this life. Do you remember when the rich young ruler came to him and said, good Lord. And even though the guy's question was urgent, I mean, the matter of eternal life was, it's an urgent matter, right? Jesus had enough time to correct him and said, why, why, why are you calling me good? No one is good. He, he, he didn't want him to miss that point. He says, no one is good except God. So if you're calling me good, it means that you're acknowledging that I am from God, I am of God. So that just in case you see any good thing in me, it didn't come from myself. It came from the life in me. In case you say, Kai, this guy is patient. No, there is a life that is producing patience. And it's important for us as Christians to know this because as we're going to see down the line, it's very easy for us to fall into a, an Old Testament-based Christianity, which is a works of the law-based Christianity. We, we, we get feedback from the Holy Ghost, for example, that ah, we're not patient. We lose our temper and then, you know, we start reading books about patience and we start making plans to be patient. <laughs> and we start setting New Year resolutions to be patient. I, I think what I'm saying is not a strange experience to any of us because we usually don't follow through with those commitments because the scripture says that it is not a man that walks or directs his own step. Man is not designed to be self-determining, actually, Right? Man is designed to be open to influences, the influence of voices, generational voices, satanic voices, and above all, the voice of God, right? It's not in man to direct his own step. So that if you're going to discover patience, you're going to first need to discover the life that produces the virtue of patience. And you're going to apply the principle of that life in order to see patience emerge, which we're going to see the principle of the life shortly. But for now, Jesus is saying that my doctrine comes from the life that I have. And there's a sense in which that's the goal of the book of John. Overall, we've said this many times, that John is trying to show you that what made Jesus who he was, was the life that he had, nothing else. It was not the teachings. It was the life. It was the life first before the teachings. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of people, a lot of um, pluralists and pantheists and relativists, you know, read the Sermon on the Mount and say, hmm, these are good principles by which to live your life. And they try to rationalize what Jesus was saying. You know, an eye for an eye makes the world blind. So it makes sense that we shouldn't give an eye for an eye. But you see, if you really read the Sermon on the Mount without omitting anything, you are going to realize that, wait a second, what Jesus is asking of me is impossible. In fact, chapter 5 of Matthew in verse 48 ends with be perfect as your father is perfect. As far as humanity goes, that's practically impossible. So that if Jesus <laughs> was only a teacher, like C.S. Lewis said, then he only compounded our woes, right? He only showed us that Kai, there's a standard to which you can never attain. But what Jesus was advertising on the Sermon on the Mount was a life. You're saying, this is my kingdom manifesto, and you're going to need me to live up to this manifesto. You're going to need help. You're going to need a life 
to live up to it. That's why he said to his disciples, I won't leave you comfortless. I will come to you because there's no hope of you producing the greater works that I spoke about if I do not come to you. Your Christianity begins with, a, with the, not with the reciting of a dogma. It begins with the receiving of life. It matures with, the, with, with your understanding of the motions and the movements of that life. And it grows on the tangent of that, that life. It is on the basis of that life that you relate with God. It's on the basis of that life that you, that you receive and enact spiritual gifts and substances. It's on the basis of that life that God hopes to give you everything else. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. Those blessings have a context in Christ, and in Christ refers to the life of Christ in you. It is that life that precipitates into intellectual ideas that stand you out, for example. It's a life. It's so... It's so intimate, it's so personal, it's so organic, but it's also a corporate life because you're not the only one who has it, right? It is shared in the body of Christ. So he says, if anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. And in context here, what is the will that Jesus is referring to? So, which is, how do you come into that life, right? Because he's saying, this is how to come into my doctrine, this is how to come into my life is that you do the will of him who sent me. So what is that will? Any takers on this one? Hmm, this Bible study is very quiet today. I take it that <laughs> we are very deeply lost in thought. So in the previous chapter, Jesus was addressing pretty much the same audience, right? In John chapter 6, verse 28. And then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God, right? What? What shall we do that we can produce the same life, the, the fruits of the same life? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom, whom he sent. So, so the gateway right into this doctrine is believing. So you see why you can never know the doctrine until you believe first, because it is believing that opens you up to a life now, when we talk about the principles of the doctrine, you will see the, the, the breaking down of believing, the kind of things believing produces. But for now, it's necessary to understand that believing is the gateway. You and I come to God believing. I, I do enjoy engaging in intellectual conversations with atheists, you know, about morality, the meaning of life, the origin of life, you know, destiny and all of these things. But I'm fully aware that uh, I cannot convince anyone to be a Christian. I can win the argument, which has happened a few times when I've gone out to preach. I can win the argument and they don't have any response, any comeback, even the most advanced ones, because atheism is quite easy to disprove if you know what to say, right? Yeah. But the fact that you won the argument has nothing to do with this person's experience of salvation at all. True. Right? At some point, they have to leave the intellectual plane and come into the believing plane because the believing is the prerequisite for receiving the life. The kingdom of God is only be, is on, would only start opening up, would only start making sense when they receive the life of God. If you go on the streets, you're going to realize that the average person is not conscious of God. 
well, I'm speaking from my European context, so pardon me, but imagine in my European context, right? The average person is not conscious of God. The average person does not know him. And that's the proof, right, that they don't have his life, right? Because the proof of life is consciousness. If I have the life of God, then I'm conscious of God. So the fact that I'm living my life the way I want, some people say that hell is going to be one great party. That's the proof that you don't have his life. That's, that's the deadness that Paul is referring to in Ephesians chapter 2, that you who were once dead in sin and trespasses, he has quickened you. He has made you alive. Yes, you know, back then, from I think around 2015, when people asked me, how are you doing? <laughs> I used to respond, I'm alive. And they used to find it very funny, but they didn't realize that I was just referring to Ephesians chapter 2. You who were dead in sin and trespasses, has he made alive? There was something he did to you that restored consciousness to you. And that is why it is a good thing that your conscience pricks you when you when you fall into sin, as it were. Because when we look at repentance from dead works, hopefully next week, you would see that one of the questions we try to answer is, do we need to keep repenting? Right? And any gospel that convinces you, you know, otherwise, right, is, is snuffing the life out of that sensitivity that's inside of you. So Jesus said, you have to come believing. You know, it's interesting that one of the banes of Christianity, which is the problem that Paul particularly faced in Galatia, was that they came believing, but then along the line, they wanted to, to use works, right, to, <laughs> to advance with God, essentially. And he said, who bewitched you? And when we looked at Galatians, we said that it's possible for a Christian to be bewitched, and bewitched is seduced, right, seduced away into something or bewitched, which is probably a more better way to put it. And we said, <laughs> the only way a Christian can be bewitched is, is the who that Paul refers to, is that there's a who involved, right? Who bewitched you? Somebody did this, right? Somebody came with a message. Somebody came with a teaching. Somebody came with an advice. Somebody came with a proposition. Somebody came with an outlandish promise. And you are being drawn away from the basis of your faith, which is believing to something else. You know, your, your pastor can tell you that if you don't pay tithes, you won't go to heaven, right? Or your pastor can tell you that if you don't pay tithes, God, God will become your enemy. What is happening in... Of course, I know that I'm touching on a very controversial subject, and I don't intend to expand on it, but I can assure you that <laughs> what I'm saying is not a basis, right, for you to stop paying your tithes. You know, there are some people that the reason they ask you <laughs> is tithing biblical is because they want to stop. Want to stop. <laughs> right? if, you, <laughs> if you are in that category, you are, you, you are lost and you need help because if you truly understand the burden of tithing, and I can say this to you without explaining, but the Lord give you understanding. If you understand the burden of tithing, you will never give only 10%. Your, your, your life will not become bounded to 10%. You know? It is when you don't understand the true burden that you feel like you owe God your 10%. And once you do it, you have signed a certain contract 
that guarantees that he's not angry with you, that guarantees that the devourer will not steal your money and all of that. You know, if it was even true, we would have had many rich people in Nigeria by now, right? Because the basis upon which you come to God is believing, is believing. You know, it's possible for you to say, God, I want to marry, right? And then you're like, God, you know, I need to marry because I've been a good person. You know, I've served you. <laughs> I've served you. I've, 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 I've labored, I've fasted, I've prayed. So therefore, I need to marry. The basis upon which we come to God is believing. It is only through believing uh, we don't have. Okay, let me stop saying we don't have time. But it's only through believing that we come into, into things in God. The, the, the only way you can stand righteous before God you know, if we say, let's pray now, everybody starts speaking in tongues. That, that possibility, that activity is made possible by believing. You can talk to God and you are righteous before him, not because of what you did wrong or right, but because of believing. It is, it is a foundation. If you are coming to God for healing, you must come believing. You must not come thinking that you deserve it or thinking that you don't deserve it. You must come believing. You must come believing. It is, it is a fundamental principle. Jesus said that if you don't do this work, this foundational work, you cannot know the doctrine. Um, okay, so let's run. And then in verse 18, so he tells us what the doctrine is, right? That the doctrine is not a message. The doctrine is a life that he had in him. And that it was his submission to that life right that produced the things that he did and in verse 18 he says that he who speaks from himself so he begins to tell us the principle of that life right it's important that it's possible for you to have life and not know the principle that powers that life and what that means is that you're not going to profit you know from that life you know paul said to timothy that i want you to continue in these things so that your profiting can appear to all men because it's possible that you have things that can produce profit, but you are not profiting from them. So it's possible that you have the life of God, but it's not producing profit, sufficient profit for you because you are ignoring the fundamental principle of that life. And what's the principle of the divine life? What's the principle of the doctrine of Christ? The principle is called dependence. Is dependence. Man was made to depend on God. You know, in our generation, it's popular to say that you are enough, right? <laughs> we use it to encourage ourselves. You are enough. Hallelujah. I can assure you that you are not enough. And just in case you've not found out, you're going to find out soon. In fact, you've probably already found out, right? That you are connecting, for example, to this call with a phone. And you didn't make the phone. <laughs> maybe if you're, maybe you didn't even buy the phone <laughs> yourself. Or if some part of the equation did not involve you at all, you're just a beneficiary of the labor of another. And that's even at the basic physical material level. You are not enough. God did not make you enough. He made, he made you and I finite because if God is infinite, you can say that the only thing he lacks is finiteness. So that's why he made you and I, so that there can be a story. As it were, a story that is bounded in time. And 
the biggest challenge that all of us face is our finiteness, right? The fact that we're limited, the fact that we don't know tomorrow. I've said before that if Elon Musk even had the ability to predict two weeks ahead of time, he wouldn't have been in the $44 billion mess that he finds himself in right now. So that even the smartest, richest man in the world <laughs> has that infirmity that he doesn't know the future. You are finite. The Greek word for man is anthropos. And the Greek philosophers came up with the idea that to be a man means to depend. That's what anthropos is, to look up. Man was not made to, to be, man was not made after his own kind. You were not made after your own kind. You were made to depend. You lean on Christ for your righteousness. You lean on him for your justification. And it's a shame if you don't lean on him for your supply. Because whatever it is you have in your bank account is not enough. No matter how big it is. Whatever certificates you have are not enough, no matter how rich they are. And no matter how rich they are, they cannot com be compared to the things that eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, that have not entered into the heart of man, but have been prepared by God for our glory. So do you realize how much we should change ourselves when we do not lean on Jesus? So you, 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 you book a ticket and you go on a 10-day vacation because you have money. <laughs> in the days that you didn't have money, you used to pray for every transport fare. But now because there's money in the account, you can take such a decision without the impute of the Father. You know? Jesus says, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. So, so it, is, it is a deferred life. That's the principle. So, so that going back to our patience exa example, if, if I find that there's no patience in myself, <laughs> there's, no, there's nothing I can do that can produce patience. The only thing I can do is to, is, to, is to lean on Jesus, is to lean on Jesus, lean on him, lean on him until, until he administers reality. That's what truth is. He says, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Lean on Jesus, lean on Jesus. He will administer a protocol of life. And it is that protocol of life that will then produce the fruit of patience. Everything else you do is in the flesh. And the Bible calls it dead works. We're going to see what dead works means when we look at that repentance from dead works. Right? It says, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But because the life is not mine, because the energy is not mine, then the glory cannot be mine. I'm involving another. You know, Jesus said in the popular verse of scripture, John 3, 16, that God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And we said that eternal life is a quality of life, that its, it's quantity is everlasting, but that's not the main idea, even though everlasting is a huge component of it. It is the God kind of life. It is the Zoe. So it means that you have God, hmm, let me put it with all due respect, you have God at your disposal. If you have eternal life, it means that when you have a challenge, it's not just your wisdom that's supposed to, go, that's supposed to be at work to, to decipher and to resolve that challenge. You can tap into another wisdom. You can tap into another wisdom. You, you essentially have another life so that 
every challenge you face, right, is an opportunity for you to discover how God does it. You know, many people plan their own wedding, but when it's your own turn, you say, okay, God, let me discover how you plan weddings. So can you, can you be my chief wedding planner? And then you now discover that there is another way that is better than anything that you could have thought of by yourself. It's a life of dependence. That's the principle, depending on Jesus. And I say that um, most times what fixes our struggle in prayer is when we remember that we're dependent. It is our false sense of security, our false sense of independence that actually makes us stray from the presence of God. Because when you can convince yourself that, ah, I woke up today, I was able to go to school, I was able to have very productive conversations, and I didn't even pray, I didn't even read Bible. You know, if you convince yourself that such an existence is a possibility with men, then you continue on that tangent. But Jesus said that blessed are the poor in spirit. <laughs> he places a blessing on anybody who manages to maintain poverty of spirit through all seasons of life. It doesn't matter how much God blesses you. It doesn't matter how much situations change around you. If you can maintain that posture of poverty of spirit, Jesus leaves a blessing on you. He says, because you, it is your type that will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the point spirit. Blessed are the point spirit. So this is the principle of life dependence. Now, uh, this is theory, right? As a practical, and we'll close on this, we need to look at John chapter 14 because Jesus has told us, this is my doctrine. Um, this is the principle upon which my life is based. But can we see it at work a little bit? There are so, so many examples in the book of John that we could have used. Um, but John 14 brings together some very key ideas. So I would like us to use it. So now Jesus is is expanding more on his manifesto, on the practical aspect of his life. And a scenario is presented to us, a scenario where he was about to die, right? If somebody's about to die, usually they should be more troubled about the situation than the people around them. I mean, everybody's troubled, but you would expect that the person who's about to die is more sober in that sense. But so Jesus was faced with death, essentially, right? This was one of the last things he said. And we're seeing how even in the face of death, that life was at work. So Sami, can you read for us from verse 1 to verse 11 of John chapter 14? Read John chapter 14, verse 1. Uh, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. 
And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? And yet you have not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the father. So how can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Yeah, thank you, Sami. So do you see that dichotomy, that arrangement right, going on in verse 11? Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. So this is a kind of tension that, that exists in every Christian, in every believer, right? Which is where a lot of the confusion, doctrinal confusion around Christianity comes in. But Jesus did not take any one position. He said that both things are happening at the same time. He says, I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. And those are two divergent but also convergent realities about my life. And we said that the, the, the doctrine of Christ was that the father in him was the one who was producing those works. But for the father in him to produce those works, he first had to be in the father. And that's how the works were possible. The doctrine of Christ as it relates to believers is that we have to be included in Christ, right? For certain things to accrue to us. And then because we are included in Christ, Christ in us can now produce certain other possibilities. Now, I know that that may be a bit complex, but let's break it down a little bit, right? Let's, let's start from the beginning. So he's saying, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions, are many tents, are many tabernacles, essentially. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, our traditional interpretation of this scripture is that Jesus is going to heaven to build mansions for us, which um, we will inhabit. So you have a mansion in heaven, even though, um, okay, let's not press that teaching. But the question to ask, try to understand these this verses, where is Jesus going, right? We know that, first of all, he's going to the cross. That's where he's referring to. Is going to the cross. That's the immediate place that he's going to, right? And from the cross, he was going to ascend to the Father. And so we can say that where he's going is the cross and the Father. So he's saying, I'm going to the cross and I'm going to the Father and I'm going to prepare a place for you, right? In my Father's house are many mansions. I don't know if you see what's going on here. So my Father's house is where my Father dwells, right? And we are told by Paul in Colossians that the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ bodily. Jesus said to the Jews, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they thought that he was referring to the physical temple, but he was referring to himself. So he was the expression of the Father. He was the house of the Father. But he was saying that in me, there are many rooms. I have capacity for many. But you, you cannot yet be included in me legally as it were you cannot yet be included in me so i have to 
go to the cross and pay the price of substitution so that you can be included in me. So what happened in the cross was the principle of inclusion, right? That because of, that when Jesus died on the cross, because he was guiltless, right? And I've mentioned this before that the testimony of Pilate and all the judges who, who attested to the fact that there was no sin in Jesus was necessary for the claims of justice in heaven to be satisfied that in the spirit realm, it was clear to every entity that this man was not dying for his sins. What, what the possibility that that created was that his blood was now available for the sins of many. Because if Jesus died because of sins that he did, then his blood would have been for himself, right? But because he died guiltless, God had the foundation to bring redemption to many through his blood. So that's the arrangement that was going on in the cross, that there is an entire kingdom, there is a, there is a kingdom of possibilities with the Father that you are currently not part of, but I'm going to the cross so that I can include you. And this is where it begins, right? This is where your believing begins, that when you believe in Jesus by faith, you are included in Christ. And, and many things accrue to you because you are included in Christ. One of them is the forgiveness of sins. One of them is the acceptance before God because you are in Christ. That is where we found the principle of, of dependence from. Paul says that you are seated in heavenly places with Christ. And what he's inviting us to do is to, is to also physically sit and understand what are the things that accrue to me because I'm in Christ. Right? Because... Like we said earlier, it's very possible for us to degenerate into a works-based version of our faith, right? A works-based version of Christianity that how much I can get is dependent on how much I can do. But wait a second. Before your doing is accounted for, there is a context in which you are situated. And that context is by no means a poor context. Paul says that in Christ, God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. There is. So that's what he's saying to you, that I go to prepare a place for you and I will come again and receive you to myself, into myself, right? That where I am, there you may, you may also be. Now, because of our time, we need to close. We're not going to touch um, the way, the truth and the life. But as you know, those statements are fundamental to, to Christianity. But for now, we're looking at the concept of you in Christ. So the same way, that Jesus is in the Father, that's the same way that you and I are included in Christ. One of the main things I want to focus on briefly that is a product of our inclusion in Christ is that we are delivered because we are included in Christ. You know, as far as your deliverance is concerned, it's, a, it's past tense in God. The same way the Israelites were delivered in Egypt from the angel of death, Right? Not because of the right or wrong that they did, but just because of the blood on the lintel, right? Of their doors. They were delivered. Which is why, even if a Christian is demonized, you realize that the only thing it takes to free such a person is to cast out the devil, right? You, you don't go and buy machetes and bring coconuts and do anything other than exercise a legal position of authority to enforce the deliverance because the deliverance 
has already been signed and ratified so that you in Christ is for your deliverance, is for your separation from the world, is for your deliverance from the penalty of sin. Friends, the day you stand before God, the penalty of death, eternal death, is not one of the options for you. It's not one of the possibilities for you because you are in Christ. There are many things that Satan cannot do around your life except if you permit him because you are in Christ. Colossians tells us that, that your life is hidden within Christ and Christ in God. There is a layer, a measure of covering and protection that comes upon you because you're in Christ, right? There is a destiny that is allocated to you because you're in Christ. There are giftings that are allocated to you because you're in Christ. There are open doors that are located to you because you're in Christ. There are riches that are located to you because you're in Christ. There are things. The Bible says that eyes have not seen them. Things that are prepared for you because you are in Christ. So that it is such a pity, right? Because if the devil cannot stop you from, from making that decision to come into Christ, then he would do his very best to ensure that you do not operate from that place of rest. That you always operate from the place of anxiety because that is where he can manipulate things or you operate from the place of the flesh. As long as you operate from your ascended position in Christ, you are always 10 steps ahead of the devil. You are always ahead of him. That's why Paul says to the Philippians, be anxious for nothing. Because anxiety is not just anxiety. Anxiety is a doorway to many things that will expose you to the attacks of the enemy. So he says, be, be anxious for nothing, but in everything. Because irrespective of what might look like a delay in front of you, your context in the spirit has been secured. And the fact that you exist in that context is sufficient reason for you to continually give thanks. He says, with everything, in everything with prayer and thanksgiving and supplication, let your request be made known to God. And one of the provisions of that context is that the peace of God, the peace of God, <laughs> is, one of those, is one of those things of the doctrine that you can only know after you come into the experience of the doctrine. So there are many things that are cruel to you because you're in Christ. And look at what um, Jesus says to Philip further down, right? Because Philip was like, hmm, okay, now we realize that you're going to the Father and none of us has seen him, right? Except you. So show us the Father and, and that's enough, you know? And, you know, this is one thing that happens to us in our Christianity as well. We're like, okay, God, just show me one angel and I'll believe. <laughs> show me your face and I'll believe, for example, or um, just do this one miracle and to settle it forever. Or I don't know what it is that you might be tempting God with in that sense. And Jesus now pointed out a knowledge deficiency. He says, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me? Meaning that it's possible that you have received the seed of life, but you don't know its true potential. You, you are still looking, you are looking for what is not lost, right? In that sense. Have I been with you so long and you do not know me? What God is calling us to is to begin to engage the movements of that life. It is in that life that our destiny is secured. Well, in verse 11, Jesus says, believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the work's sake. So I am in the Father and the Father is in me. 
the first half of the doctrine of Christ is that we are included in Christ. And by virtue of that inclusion, we have access to his life. The second part of the doctrine of Christ is that Christ comes to live in us through his Holy Spirit. And it is that indwelling that produces good works. That's the second part of it. So you see, you come into the first part by believing. There's nothing you have to do. But the second one, you receive a seed of the life of God that you have to labor with, that you have to follow through it in order to see fruits from it. Because Jesus said, I want you to believe me. If you don't believe my words, then believe the works. Right? So Jesus is saying that it's not possible for you to have my life without certain manifestations in your own life. Right? But of course, we've seen in our day that it's possible for a believer to not have the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit. It's likely that that believer has not realized that they are not only in Christ, but Christ is in them. And for you to engage Christ in you, you have to do what Paul calls working out. So that's where the laboring part of Christianity comes in. And I hope this helps set the record clear because some people find it hard to balance between the fact that God has done it all and we have to labor. Right? But Hebrews chapter 4 makes it very clear that there remains a rest for the people of God. It says, let us labor to enter into that rest. Right? You, are, you are laboring because you have an investment. Right? And it is that investment that will produce greater works. If we had continued reading in verse 12, it says that, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than this will he do because I go to my father. Now, greater works here um, is actually quantitative. He's saying that I did a lot of great works, but you're going to do much more than that. It's not qualitative in the sense that I don't think you can do anything greater than raising the dead, right? But Jesus is saying that you can do it many more times than I was able to do in my 33 years on earth. But how are you going to come into greater works? You are going to need to engage the life that is in you. Right? You're going to need to engage that life. So if the principle of you in Christ is dependence, right? You depend on Christ for your salvation. You depend on him for your, for your deliverance. You depend on him for your righteousness. You depend on him for your supply. Right? What is the principle of Christ in you? Jesus says in verse 15, that if you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The principle of God in you is keep my commandments, keep my words. You see, one of the things the life of God in you comes to do, the first thing it comes to do is that it comes to authenticate you. Right? The inner witness of the Holy Spirit authenticates that you're the child of God, right? But the second thing the life of God comes to do in you after authenticating you is to establish the authority of God so that one of the ways that you know that you're a true believer is that at some point you would have heard the voice of God telling you do or don't do. Now, whether you or not you obey that voice is another concern entirely. But the fact that you received such prompting, such inspiration that ah, you, are, you are angry in your soul, but Another voice is, is, is despising that anger and telling you to do the thing that the anger is telling you not to do. That's the 
authority structure. That's the governmental structure of the Holy Ghost, right? If you are going to profit from that indwelling, if that indwelling is going to produce greater works, you have to keep my words. But you see, it's not the words here is referring to is the realm of God, right? It's the is the proceeding word of God, is the living word of God. In John chapter 6, he told them, Do not labor for the meat that perishes, right? But labor for the meat that endures to eternal life. Right? So he's saying that you have to labor to come into my words. You know, there is there is an intensity, a consistency of activity that you have to engage in so you can come into my words. And when you come into my words, you have to keep them. That is how you engage the seed of life and, and nurture it to the place where it produces great works. What, what word has God said to you? What word have you kept? Is there something in your life that you are keeping? And the only reason you are keeping it is because they were his words. It's because Jesus said them to you. Right? This is the doctrine of Christ. That I'm included in the Father. Right? And so many things are mine because of that provision. But because I have to operate on the earth, the Father is also included in me. And by surrendering to his to his movements inside of me, by keeping his words, I'm able to work out his will. Right? In my life. Yeah. So this is the core of the doctrine of Christ. It is about a life. It is about something organic. It is about something, something true, something real, something that can make free indeed. Right? Something that can quicken, something that can energize, something that can produce a fresh vitality. It is what each of us is called to. It is this life that we are called to put on display. That is possible you can be a Christian and your light never shines. Right? But when you begin to keep his words, begin to keep his words, first of all, you secure those words and then you keep them. You just notice that your light shines. So just in case you are, you are going through a difficult situation and you are binding and casting, can I tell you that it may be that what you need to do is to secure his word, is to secure his word. Because the moment you secure the word of the king concerning that situation, the Bible says that where the word of the king is, there is power. It could even be that God came to you with that word, but in your mind, it was just a word. So you, you, you kept the word on one side and you continued praying. You continued praying. But Jesus says, if you, if you love me, keep my commandments. Right? Okay. So this is where we will stop. And next week, we will then look at the principles of the doctrine of Christ. But I hope that we're able to break some ground today. Um, any questions as we close? Any thoughts? Very highly welcome and appreciated. Yeah, I would like to uh, point something out. You know, when you were talking about uh, Jesus' reply to them, you know, saying mm -hmm. that I am in the Father, you know. It reminds me of, um, you see, when he said, I'm going, I'm going to prepare a place for you. 
And with all the example you gave, you know, with, with the explanation you gave, I think one scripture that was coming to my mind was John 12, where he was saying, except the corn of wheat dies, it cannot, it, it abides in itself. Mm -hmm. So I think that um, explanation kind of makes it clear. So is when one when one corn of wheat dies, and is you know when it grows again, it doesn't grow as one corn of wheat. Mm. It grows with accommodation for more grains on it. Yeah. Um, so I think it makes sense. Uh, it's it's a very practical explanation of the identification of the inclusion. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Sammy. So the merchandise that you have to take to work tomorrow is not a message, it's a life. Right? It's a life. If the if the glory of that life, because that's the third thing the Holy Spirit comes to do, apart from authenticating us and bringing authority into our lives, if we follow through with the first two, the outcome is glory. If the glory of that life is to be manifest, you need to engage that life. You know, that's where speaking in tongues comes in. That's where praying the Holy Ghost comes in. That's where building up yourselves on the most holy scriptures come in, right? Because you are engaging the resources of that life. And some is right. Um, Jesus said that except the corn of wheat falls to the corn and dies, it abides alone, right? And even though he had he had the enjoyment of all these privileges with the Father. If he didn't go to the cross, it would have been just him and the Father. So he said, I've gone to make room for you. I've gone, to, I've, come, I've gone to make room for you. You can now be included. I don't want any of us to go from this place and continue coming to God on the basis of our merit. You know, it's possible. It's possible to come to God on the basis of a pity party. You know, you really want God to, to look at you and pity you. And I think that's, that's a bit of a shame, you know, in general, because if you went to someone who could practically solve your problem financially, for example, you don't really want the person to pity you in that sense, right? You don't want the person to put a hand over your shoulder and say, hey, yeah, so you don't have money. <laughs> well, even if you want that, you want something more than that, right? So you, you kind of wipe your tears and productively engage the person so that you can get what you want because the person truly has the capacity to solve it. And that's my prayer, that rather than going to God, hoping that he will somehow look at us in a different way and give us what we want, or standing on the basis of Christ, standing on the basis of Christ and beckoning for the mercy that is available to us in Christ.